two things that I think are worth mentioning about that gospel text, of course, among many. First, I am so grateful that Jesus looks at the person who lacks with love. I'm so grateful that in all of my shortcomings and the one thing, in my case, the 81 things that I'm lacking, Jesus looks at me and he loves me. The second thing that is worth noting is that the order of St. Anthony is an order of which I'm a part and several of us have participated in. And its patron, St. Anthony, is one of the desert fathers of the church. And his life was turned around when he heard this gospel text being read. He was a young man at the time who was born into great means and had a lot of wealth like this rich young ruler. And he heard the reading of the gospel text and the Holy Spirit so convicted him that in fact he did exactly what the text said. He sold all of his possessions, gave the money to the poor, and went out into the desert to live as a hermit to be a monastic, one of the first monastics, and experience incredible manifestations of the supernatural. When I hear that text, it's always unsettling. Is there somebody besides me who's unsettled by that text? Anybody want to grunt and groan maybe when you hear that text? Instead of praise to you, Lord Christ, it's like... Mm. It's interesting. I had, a, I had an assignment when I came up to preach this morning that was clerical, administrative, behind-the-scenes assignment. And as I'm listening to the gospel text, the Lord said, well, maybe this isn't just clerical. And that is, I wanted to make a deeply pastoral plea to every person who calls sanctuary home. If you're visiting with us this morning, this is housekeeping business, okay? So just maybe play a game on your phone for the next 30 seconds or something. The first time I, I came to... Uh, when I first got to Tulsa, um, there was an event a couple months on that shocked me, and it was your fall festival. And I came to the church back in Jenks on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night, whatever it was, and there were people everywhere. I'm like, where are all of these people coming from? I could not believe you guys have a deep affection for your fall festival. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I was in a planning meeting this summer where we were talking about ways that we can show the love of Christ to this community. And somebody said, well, for instance, you could have like a Halloween party at the, at the school. And the Holy Spirit said, move the fall festival to their school. And I was like, oh man, this is gonna be a lot of work and nobody's gonna wanna go. But I'm too dumb to let that stop me. And so I'm asking, you're in a church where you've heard a lot of sermons about justice. You've heard a lot of sermons about the poor. You're in a church where you've prayed a lot of prayers for the least of these. This is our opportunity to be the answer to our own prayers. October 30th, we, we are going to MacArthur Elementary School. We need help, we need workers. Shelby can do a lot of things. She could probably do 95% of it. That's a joke. But we need a lot of hands on deck. We need a lot of help. And what would help the staff from having Ajita is if you signed up to help, so we knew, that'd be great. But it's not just about doing the work. Here's what I'm saying. We wanna go to them. 
We want to bring all of the love, all of the fun, all of the joy that you have at a fall festival to them, to their house, to their neighborhood. When we told the, the school we wanted to do this, they accepted right away. We're thrilled that we wanted to do it, and they've never had anything like this happen before. This is your chance to be the answer to your own prayers. And frankly, what good are the prayers of the people if we don't take them seriously enough to actually drive a block over and spend two hours with people who have nothing? And I'm not trying to get heavy on you, but shame on us, and I'm going to say it plainly, shame on us if it's the staff and six people that go to all these kids. We went to the block party. They said there'd be 1,500 people. Guess what? There were 1,500 people. You know why? Because they're fighting to win notebooks and pencils because they don't have anything. I'm going to be there. I'll be carrying tables and moving chairs. I will not be face painting, I promise, because that would be just bad. Let's do this. Now, some of you, I understand your work schedule. It's, a, it's an odd hour thing. It's 5 to 7 on a Tuesday. But man, what would happen if you went to your boss and said, hey, is there any chance I can cut out my, my church is doing something at a school over at MacArthur, and I want to go over and help. What is your boss going to say to that? No? Maybe, but at least ask. Make him be a Scrooge. God didn't move us to this neighborhood, to this town, and to this building to just sit in the building. Well, here we are. And if you've got to ask an awkward question to a supervisor or do something uncomfortable, let's do it. Let's do it together. These are the cups of cold water you hand out in the name of Jesus. This is it right here. If you have a business, this thing is going to cost us like five or $6,000 or something crazy. If you have a business or you work at a business where you have some influence, we need corporate sponsors. And you know what we do? We're going to advertise your business. And you know what it's going to say? It's going to tell every family that shows up at that thing, your business cares about them and their neighborhood. That's what it's going to say. We cared enough about you to rent a, rent a bouncy house for you or to buy cotton candy or whatever. Please, don't miss your moment. This is your moment. This is your chance to step up and fulfill your purpose. That's a heavy announcement. I didn't mean it to get that heavy. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Okay. If you have a Bible... I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Job, chapter 23. Clearly, we're headed in a good direction today. And the hits keep on coming, folks. You know, anybody who's eager to preach out of Job, Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel, or Revelation, run away very quickly. Of all the lectionary texts, I, I started reading through them, and I'm like, well, I'm not preaching out of Job. And here we are. And here we are. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to read verses 16 and 17 of Job 23. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my... I'm going to read this sassy, okay? And fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that what he would answer me. I don't understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, 
and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Robert Alter, who's a Hebrew scholar, translates this, and there I would get away for all time from my judge. Verse 8, behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. And over to verse 16, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would extend a special grace into this room to empower me for the preaching and proclamation of your word, but also to open up all of our hearts, all of our souls, to receive a deposit that you have intended for us today. And all God's children said, Amen. You'll notice that our friend Job starts off this particular passage pretty bold. He's fairly confident. As a matter of fact, in uh, another translation, it says his complaint is defiant. The opening salvo here, it doesn't even hint at the possibility that Job might be askew. He might have his facts wrong. No, Job is confident. He is sure that he is going to go to the seat of God, which is also known as a throne. He's going to come before the throne of God. And what does he say? I know what God's going to say when he hears me. He's going to say nothing. Anybody besides me afraid for Job right now? This is very unsettling. And I immediately start thinking, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you thought this way ever? What, what is going on right now? He's so confident in his uprightness that he's convinced he's going to get off. He's convinced that he's so upright, his argument is so solid that when he gets before the throne of God and he starts to lay it down, God's going to go, whoa, my bad. Hello? You, you, you see this, right? Hopefully I'm not just the only one. So I want to start by just pulling out three quick insights Three quick, can I call them jabs? Do you mind if I punch you and then quick disappear? Is that okay? I got punched all week, so I just want to share the love. What I noticed here about Job is just because you know, here's number one, just because you know something rightly doesn't mean you know all the things rightly. Can I say that again? Just because you know one thing correctly doesn't mean you know all the things correctly has anybody besides brother mark gone into a conversation with somebody with an accurate piece of information presuming that that one piece of information was all the information and then in the midst of that conversation maybe 30 seconds in you realize you're in trouble because you didn't have all the facts you see, Job is leaning into something that is true, and that is he is upright, and the upright don't endure these sorts of things. If you go back to the very first chapter of Job, 
In the eighth verse, God himself calls Job upright and blameless. So Job is not inaccurate. He's not in error. He's just incomplete. How many relationships have been damaged with information that was correct but incomplete? How many bridges have been burned? How many bad decisions have been implemented? Because with information we had in our hands, it was right, but it wasn't all the necessary information. You see, there was more going on. Note to self, any book of the Bible that in the first few verses features Satan by name as a key player, proceed with caution. Hey, Satan, the fact that they're having this conversation, does it bother anybody besides me? Like we spend all of our time casting the devil out and God is chit-chatting. Have you noticed Job, Satan? And this tells me that chances are in your life, in my life, but hear this, certainly in the life that is going through hell. Certainly in the life that is going through hell. There's stuff going on in the heavenly dimension we don't know. Has anybody here ever met a nasty person? I'll wait. Oklahoma's the nicest state and apparently the most dishonest one. I'll wait for you to raise your hand. Have you ever met a nasty person? In the gatherings, place, not space. The space is out there. The place is the park. We don't confuse the two. You've met a nasty person. Has anybody been tempted to respond in kind to a nasty person? Again, confession twice in this service. Okay, good. Here's the deal. We need to remind ourselves all the facts that prove their nastiness are one thing, but they're not everything. The second thing I want to point out here is the struggle with something psychologists call object permanence. Job's struggle with object permanence. Now, every person in the room, I believe, has dabbled in the arts of object permanence. And what it is, is it's a developmental phase in the life of a child. Usually for the first six months or so of a child's life, you can walk up to that child, look at said child in the face, and do this. Peekaboo! They may cry, depending on how well you do it. They may laugh. But why do they respond the way they do? Because in the mind, in the psyche of that five-month-old baby, when you did this, you ceased to be present. You disappeared. You see, in, the, in those first six to eight months of life, those children do not possess object permanence. So what this means is if they can't see it, it's not there. Job struggles with object permanence. Did you notice he says these words? I do not perceive him. He is not there. Boo, Job. Hello? And this got me thinking, what if the mark of Christian maturity is that we develop object permanence? 
And that means just because we don't see God or just because we don't perceive God doesn't mean he's not there. Please understand, we're not talking about doubt this morning. I'm not suggesting that this is a doubt issue because Job is not doubting, he is asserting. He's not saying, I wonder where God is. He's saying, I know that God is not there. The lack of perception does not equal the lack of presence. Please jot yourself this note. Just because you can't sense God doesn't mean he's disappeared. Just because you can't feel God doesn't mean he's abandoned you. This is the mark of immaturity, but the mature saint says, I may not see you, I may not feel you, but I know in my spirit you're there. The third point, God will use perceived absence to humble us and open us up. He will use perceived absence to humble us and to open us up. You see, what happens is Job realizes, what does he start off saying? I'm going to go to God's seat and I'm going to have words with God. That's the way we'd say it in New York, right? Job's got swagger for the first six verses. You know what God's going to say? He's going to say nothing to me because I'm going to bring it, right? That's what he's saying. And suddenly, God's nowhere to be found. You see, God will use perceived absence to open us up to the fact that we are not in control of him or our own restitution. God's like, okay, you can't see me. You think I've disappeared? I can work with this. You're not in control, Job. You need an appointment. Walk-ins are not welcome. You're not just going to walk in. No, listen to me. You're not just going to walk up to my seat and tell me what you think I need to hear. Because even if you could find the seat, I'm not going to be in it. Or if I'm in it, I'm going to be like this. And you're going to be like, he's nowhere to be found. God has abandoned me again. And God's like... You see, Job's probably getting a little nervous at this point. He's probably hearing a replay in his ears of what he's saying out loud. You know, part of what was not included in our lectionary is Job starts musing, and what does he say? In verse 13, he says, well, God is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? And what God desires, he does. Uh Uh-oh. He's going to complete what he's appointed for me. Hint, not what I want him to do. And he's got a lot of things in his mind that I don't know about. I'm paraphrasing here. Look at verse 15. He says, therefore, I am terrified at his presence. God's like, okay, we can work with this now. It's when Job gets to this point of terror. Job gets to this point of thinking God's completely AWOL. God says, I can work with this. I mean, think about it. When you really encounter God, soldiers fall down when they meet his messengers. 
His prophets fall on the ground and cry out, woe is me for I am undone. And that's just when he sees part of his clothes. What happens when you stroll up to his throne and you're going to have words with him? 2 Corinthians 5.12 in the King James, I love the way it's phrased. Paul is speaking and he says this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's why we stopped using that translation of the Bible, I guess. But it's the word phobos in Greek. Phobic, phobia. Knowing that God is scary, we do this work. And see, I think Job has this progression from inappropriate confidence to suddenly very appropriate fear and terror to withdrawal. Translation I'm using, I'm not crazy about the way they do this 17th verse. Another way to say that last line of the 23rd chapter is to say, Job is saying, I want to withdraw into thick clouds of darkness. And there's something reasonable about that. When you realize you've been out of line and you realize that God is holy, you're like, you know what? I really don't want to be here right now. I'm sorry that I was complaining that you were kind of not doing what you should. This I'm rethinking things, right? This is what Job is doing. This is the trajectory of the chapter. And it reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden had simple instructions. Go anywhere, eat anything. One tree, don't go near that. Like good kids, the one thing you tell them not to do, that's what they've got to do. Can I get a witness? I'm going to think I'm going to start telling my kids, don't do your homework. Please don't clean your room. Sleep in as much as you want. That, that would be good. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve decide, we're going to go hang out by the tree. First problem, right? We're going to look at it. We might touch it. It smells good, right? And we all know the story. After snacks with the serpent, they wake up and they go, oh man, we're naked. This is a problem. Funny, wasn't a problem before, suddenly a problem. So they go down to the local fig store and they're like, do you have anything in a large? I gotta deal with this. And see, please hear me. What Adam and Eve are doing with fig leaves is exactly what Job wanted to do with his argument and that is fix their situation. It's the same thing. Our original power couple is dressed up in foliage that's really doubling as camouflage. And really what it is, is it's the human epic called sin management. Has anybody in the room besides this guy holding a microphone struggled with sin in your life? Thank you. Thank you. And what we try to do is we find to find all the right rules to help us manage it, and we never really eradicate it. And so we clean up the outside of the cup, just like a Pharisee, but inside it's dirty trying to fix ourselves. And 
if, if you want to look at this Genesis 3 text, I, I think it will help us to see the syntax with our eyes. Okay? Verse 7 of Genesis 3 says, The eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I like to think that hers was a one-piece, full coverage. Verse 8 Look at this. This is, this is really great. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the syntax matters here. The order of the words matters here. The, the sequence and how it's laid out here. And that is, think about it. They eat, they realize. They eat the fruit, they realize they're naked. They realize they're naked, they make themselves camouflage. They make themselves clothes, fig leaves clothes. But here's the thing. They're chilling in the fig leaf getup and they're good with it. Until they hear the sound. And I love the King James. This is two times, I don't think I've ever done this in my life. In one sermon, I've actually referenced the King James. Like, this is good. No offense if you love him, but... It says, they heard the sound of the voice of God walking in the garden. The voice was walking in the garden. And it's when they heard the voice, things shifted. When they heard the voice, suddenly they realized the fig leaves were insufficient. You see, when they heard the voice, they made a shift on the fly plan. And here was the plan. Fig leaves, trees, you know what? We might be able to work this out and get ourselves behind a tree here. Hello, he won't see us. It wasn't camouflage up front. It was just covering up front. But when they heard the voice, they needed camouflage, not just covering. Notice the sequence. They hear the voice and now they've got to start hiding because now they're afraid. Anybody need a word from God? You see, hiding was Adam's fearful response not to his sin. He wasn't afraid of his sin. He was afraid of the voice. If the voice never came walking for him, he would have been strolling about in his fig leaf supreme all day, no problem. When the voice starts echoing, when he starts to hear the rustle of the voice of God coming through the garden, that's when the fear starts to rise up. That's when the need to get into the bushes starts to rise up inside of him. And I think when we understand God faithfully, this is actually a reasonable response to things. Because he's holy. He is, as they would say, a consuming fire. And I'm dry wood with gas cologne. He is a consuming fire, and here he's coming for me. Did anybody ever watch WWF wrestling back when it was still called WWF wrestling on Saturday morning when it was awesome? I watched it at my friend's house because our family was holy. 
everybody had cool names, didn't they? I, I don't watch that filth now, you know. But I miss the days of the Iron Sheik. Hello. And a junkyard dog. Come on, and the British Bulldog and all the other dogs that showed up. I miss those days. How about this one? Jake the Snake Roberts. See, I, I imagine myself as a preacher. If I was a WWF character, I would be Mark the Verse Wrecker Arstead. Because I have this gift. If you have a verse printed up and hanging on the wall of your house, I will destroy that verse for you in a sermon. Now y'all not laughing because you're wondering what verse is coming, right? So it's our, it's our New Testament reading for the day. Hebrews chapter four. <laughs> verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, to the seat of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I've heard this verse my whole life. The Word of God is living and active. And oftentimes when that verse, I brought out the big Bible today. Because preacher got to hold the Bible when you quote that verse. And you got to wave it at somebody. And you got to say the word of God. Come on. I, I, can you all just play Pentecostal with me just for this morning? Come on. Let's play along together. The word of God is living and active. Come on. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh, come on. You're going to get something up in this house this morning. I'm telling you. People are getting ready to walk out. Like, if you're doing that stuff, sir, I'm going down the street. Thank you very much. Okay. Tweet that. Tweet that. So... <laughs> You hear this verse, and it's always talking about the Bible. And it's not about the Bible. Mark, the verse wrecker, Arstead, in the house, throwing down. It's not about the Bible. In the beginning was the... Where's all the Pentecostals go? They left. In the beginning was the... Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. Here's what we know. In the beginning was the Logos, was the Word. What does it say in Hebrews? It says, for the Logos of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And look at, look at verse 13. Again, let's look at our language closely. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Not its sight. And all are naked. What does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis 3. 
It sounds like the word is walking in the garden. And when the word is walking into your life, suddenly you realize you are naked and exposed. But here's the problem. Whether you're Adam and Eve or you're Job, when the word shows up, you want to hide because you realize you're naked because it's what the word does. The word shows up, and look at this. The word demands a word. The first of verse 12, for the word of God, the logos of God is living and active. The last part of verse 13, to whom we must give a logos. It's the same word. The word will expose us will convict us, will reveal us to be who and what we are. And then the word will say, okay, give me a word. Give me an account. Give me an explanation. Do you hear Job in this at all? Come on, Job, come and tell me. Because you know that's what God says later in the book of Job. Come on, Job, play the part of a man. Let's hear this great account you're going to give me. What happens is we realize very quickly that when we stand before the word, all of our words fall short. When we come before the seat of the word, before the throne of grace, when we come to that place, we realize we have no business being there and we certainly shouldn't be opening our mouths. It's very interesting to me that Hebrews has been talking about in the fourth chapter, the Sabbath rest of God. When did the first Sabbath happen? It was the seventh day of creation. The text would even have us believe that it's in the Garden of Eden that God is resting and what does Hebrews say? It says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let's strive to get to this place of wholeness, just like that original Sabbath in the garden. Let's try to get to that place. But the moment we try, we hear the word walking. The moment we try, we hear the voice of God. And we look down and we're like, shoot, fig leaves. This is not good. And isn't it interesting that they hide among the trees when in fact the only solution for our sin is not hiding behind the trees, but coming to the one tree that Jesus hangs from? Isn't it interesting that it's not just Adam and Eve who are naked in the presence of the word. It's all of us who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Friends, the story of the fall is not about an apple, and it's not about bad people, and it's not about husbands and wives and this sort of thing. The story of the fall is about God. The story of the fall is primarily, be, primarily about the heart of God as a missionary. We're introduced to the activity of God now, not just as a creator, but as a restorer. As a God who goes out after people who are lost. Isn't it interesting that when Adam and Eve are put out of the garden, what is the thing that keeps them out of the garden? A sword. The word sharper than two any, two, two, any two-edged sword, if you will, drives them out keeps them out. 
What if the Word is Jesus who comes to us in Scripture? What if the Word that I was flailing my Bible about before, what if that Word is Jesus coming to us through those Scriptures? Coming to us through a preached sermon? Coming to us through a friend, an author, coming to us directly into our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit? What if the purpose of the Word was not always to comfort us or to guide us, but what if the purpose of the Word was to expose us? What if the purpose of the Word was to rip away our fig leaves? Remember, rip away our delusions of competence. Rip away the illusion that somehow we can fix ourselves. The Word is there to lay us bare and expose us as being needy. And if that's true, burn away the darkness that we want to run and hide in. Turn the trees of our cover into a cross of Calvary. What if the very thing that Job is looking to avoid is the very thing that the Word wants? And this is why the writer of Hebrew moves from this very heavy language, you're going to have to give an account, you naked, exposed person, And what does he say? So then, since we have a great high priest. See, the writer of Hebrews understands something. It doesn't matter how bad our situation is. It doesn't matter our nakedness, our wretchedness, our exposedness. Those things are not an issue because we have a high priest who was stripped naked. Because we have a high priest, again, who didn't hide behind a tree. He hung on a tree. Here's the thing. Because of this fact, you and I this morning, we don't have to do what Adam and Eve did. We don't have to do what Job so desperately wanted to do. All the reasonable things that we should be doing in the presence of God, like hiding, We don't have to do them anymore because here's what we get to do. Because the word became flesh, we now can come, what does it say? To the throne of grace. How do we come? With confidence. We have no reason to be confident in and of ourselves. There's nothing about our performance, our intelligence, or our quality that should invite us to come before this great throne boldly. But that's what we do. Why? Because we have a priest who's gone before us and represents us to God and God to us. And this priest knows a lot about trees. He knows a lot about swords. He knows a lot about nakedness. He is our brother. And so whether or not we know we need him, He's there for us. And certainly, when we're looking for help in the time of need, it is there that we, with an unreasonable confidence, approach that throne that Job rightfully ran away from. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds this morning. 
And you would not just restore our love for the scriptures and quicken our hearts to be students of the scriptures. But God, I pray that you'd open us up to your word. That living and active expression of who you are. And today we would not fear your throne. We would not fear. We would not hide. We would not manage. But we would allow ourselves to be laid bare this morning because we have such great confidence in you. Keep our hearts, keep our minds. Through your peace we ask, amen.